Hey, Strategy Simplified. We're back with part three in our series with Bates White, the economic consulting firm based in the uh, Northeast United States. Bates White is a firm that is actively hiring. So if looking at and analyzing data gets you out of bed in the morning, you may be a perfect fit. In this episode, Jenny Ray chats with Katie Luker, a Bates White principal about a recent client case study that the firm conducted. It's a really unique, fast-paced, and interesting case. I know you'll enjoy it. If you haven't already checked out the previous two episodes, check out the links in the show notes for those. Without further ado, let's get into this Bates White case study. Catherine, or otherwise known to us as Katie Luker, specializes in leading teams that analyze large, complex data sets on issues associated with class certification, liability, causation, and damages. Her expertise includes applying economic analyses in False Claims Act, or FCA, Employment Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA, Antitrust, and Chapter 11 Bankruptcy Matters. These cases often require analysis of claims data and internal company databases, such as prescription, sales, product performance, and billing data. She works with counsel through all stages of litigation, including trials, government investigations, and settlement discussions. In addition, Ms. Luker holds a BS in economics from the George Washington University. And I'm really excited, Katie, to welcome you today to Strategy Simplified. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. For folks who haven't caught the previous two episodes in this series and who couldn't interpret it through everything <laughs> that I just really, you know, are hopefully articulately and probably mispronouncing it, uh, explained in your bio, can you just quickly introduce Bates White for our audience before we dive into the specific case study today? Sure. And um, no worries, that bio of mine does have a lot of jargon baked into it. So I would not blame anybody if they weren't able to succinctly say what Bates White did after hearing that. What we do at Bates White boils down to us providing complex data analyses for our clients. We're an economic consulting firm, and we typically work with lawyers or on behalf of Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, often in the litigation setting. And what we're doing is providing the service of robust data analyses, econometrics, et cetera, to you know, help develop that narrative and help our clients understand their position and what's going on in a specific matter. Amazing. Well, we're really excited today to jump into a case study with you. One thing that I found was that people told me what consulting was. And then when I you know, walked through an actual case study, it was like, oh, right, that's what they do. <laughs> this is super helpful. Uh, and I, I can honestly tell you that it was probably two years into my time at Bain that I figured out that economic consulting served lawyers primarily. I didn't really, I, I thought it served economists. I didn't know that you were economists serving lawyers. and so. Even the name was a little bit confusing to me. So I'm really excited today to bring that to life for folks. Yeah. So we're going to dive into a specific case study today. And I think the first thing we should do is just lay out the background. So can you highlight for us what was the context? Who was the client? Why did they hire y'all? I think that's a really good starting place for everyone. Yeah. And the specific case study we're going to talk about, I'm really excited to talk about a lot of times when I'm discussing my work at Bates White, because it's in a litigation setting, it's confidential and not public. But this was a case that was very much in the public eye. Our retention was public. So it's fun that I get to actually lay it out because as you said, it's easiest to understand what Bates White does when you're provided with an example. 
So the matter that we're going to talk about or that I worked on fairly recently, um, we worked on behalf of Aero Technologies, which is a subsidiary of the big company 3M. And Aero and 3M were being sued by the number ranged over time, but 230,000 U.S. service members who were alleging that these earplugs that Arrow and 3M developed called the combat arm earplugs were defective and caused hearing loss and tinnitus. And tinnitus is when you have ringing in your ears. That's, that's something I learned <laughs> when working on the case. And the reason that these are called combat arms earplugs is not surprisingly they're used in combat. And so the intent was that these earplugs provided servicemen and servicewomen with situational awareness that they otherwise wouldn't have while also protecting their ears. Because you can imagine that combat is very loud and explosive and can result in hearing loss damage. So that's for the allegations of the case that 3M and Arrow had developed these defective earplugs that didn't actually work. And then as a result, um, our U.S. servicemen and women had hearing loss because of it, hearing loss and tinnitus. So 230,000 claims, that's a lot. <laughs> it is actually the biggest MDL in history. And MDL, for those that don't know, I'll try and not use a ton of jargons. Just let me know if I <laughs> get ahead of myself. Um, and MDL stands for multi-district litigation. And what that does is it just consolidates a bunch of different claims under a single litigation for efficiency process, right? It would be a lot to bring 230,000 cases to trial. I'm not sure that that's ever been done. Um, so this was all consolidated into a single jurisdiction under an MDL. Um, and so it was really cool that we were working on behalf of these two companies in the largest MDL in history. That's, that's something that's kind of fun to say. As a result of it being the largest MDL in history, our client, Arrow, then filed for bankruptcy um, as a result of the litigation. And so then our work moving forward was to support them in their bankruptcy filing um, such that they could resolve all of this outstanding litigation through the bankruptcy court rather than going through 230,000 individual trials. Well, I don't want to have any spoiler alerts about what happened <laughs> and how it went, even though if somebody just right now can't stand it, you can look up in the news <laughs> how, how everything evolved. But what we really want to dig into is you're the, the your, your participation is public, but your actions are private, right? It so is. we don't know what you're doing behind the scenes to give this guidance, what somebody who is working with you would actually be doing in order to support a case like this. So I just want to start at the beginning. How do you start? How do you figure out what the first thing is? How do you gather the information that you need? How do you establish the relationship with the client? How many client interfaces do you have? Just give us a sense of what that early project moment feels like. Yeah, and oftentimes I'll get asked, you know, what is a typical team size at Bates White? You know, what's the scope of our projects? And it, I always say that it ranges, but it also ranges within the duration of a project. So. When I first started working on Arrow, we just call it Arrow for shorthand, um, at Bates White, I was previously working in a different practice area. So our work at Bates White is kind of consolidated under different areas. So I was working in a practice area called Life Sciences, which primarily works on behalf of pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers. I believe Scott and Amelia, as we talked on prior podcasts, they're also Life Sciences 
um, peeps. But this practice, uh, Arrow, was in what's called the mass tort practice that does a lot of Chapter 11 bankruptcy work. And when I first started on the case, there were only about three or four core people working on the case, myself included. And then over the course of the matter, it expanded to, you know, 12, 15, depending on different points in time. And that's because the scope of what we were doing very much expanded. When we first start out, there's a lot of unknowns. You know, what data are we going to use to help the client understand the issues? Is there available data, right? Sometimes in litigation, we get lucky because we get to work with a lot of data that's produced by each side in discovery, and that can be really helpful. But oftentimes in the beginning, we're kind of just working with what's publicly available to the extent that the client doesn't have data yet so that we can help provide some answers and some insight into the issues at hand without having data yet. So what data we had transformed over time and our team grew as we got more data. So in the beginning, when it was just me and a few other people, we were working with publicly available data on hearing loss, rates of hearing loss among veterans, really whatever we could find, you know, just that was publicly available. At a certain point, we got a lot of data, which is really exciting as someone who works in the data industry. The Department of Defense produced audiograms, which are uh, hearing tests for nearly everybody that was involved in the litigation. So we went from having no data or very limited data based on what was publicly available to having almost more data than we knew what to do with at the time. Our team had to really expand really quickly in order to process and analyze the data. Not only did it expand in terms of numbers, we expanded in terms of the type of people we had working on the project. So we brought in economists that we have at Bates White to help us you know, provide a deeper understanding of the analyses that we were doing, um, built out the infrastructure of the team more across all levels, brought in more consultants, um, more people at the management level to help us process and analyze these data. And through that, we were able to provide more and more value and become more and more integral to our clients on the case because we were now providing them with analyses and an understanding of the data that I'd like to think they wouldn't be able to do without us. <laughs> Amazing. All right. And then uh, just in the first week or two of the project, when you said you're you're gathering this data, how are you doing it? It, you you know, or how do you decide what data you need? How do you uh, optimize for the goals that you have versus the time that you have to spend on it? Right. Um, you know, are do you, do you just are you sitting in a room making a list of the potential data? Are you using 16 data resources? Just what, what are the actual mechanics of that? That's what we're trying to get under the hood on here. Yeah, good question. So when it starts out, I like to think that my, you know, almost 10 years ish in this industry gives me some idea of like what to think of and what might be helpful. So I definitely have, you know, public data sources in mind that I've relied on time and time again. The CDC, for example, publishes various survey data sets that talk about um, the health of people in the US and that's really rich data. And then a lot of it is also Googling, right? You know, that doesn't sound very sophisticated, but it at least is an important place to start. When you start with Googling, I start by, you know, this case was all about U.S. service men and women. So looking at, you know, the VA, the department that supports veterans and what publicly available data they have. How are they thinking about hearing loss among their service men and women? And kind of, you know, going from point A to B to C to figure out 
what is available, what's the information that's out there, what ground has been covered, what ground hasn't been covered. There's very rare circumstances where I feel like I've worked on a case that has zero information about it out there in the universe. It's just a matter of, you know, putting on your sleuthing hat and figuring out where to dig. And a lot of times it does start with Google combined with, you know, the experience that I have. Love it. Amazing. Well, let's dive in a little bit to the research and analysis your team performs. So you talked already about a little bit about the data connect, uh, collection, but let's just pinpoint, you get 200,000 plus audiograms, right, um, in the collection of data where um, that information was published. What do you do with it next? Right. How do you decide what you're going to do with it? What tools are you actually using? Is this is this an Excel function? Are you using advanced statistical analysis? Um, and, and what were you hunting for? And when did you decide that? Did you start playing with it first and then decide? Did you start at the beginning? Just tell us a little bit about that analytical process, specifically with that data set. Right. So the first time we receive any data, the first step is to do some general diagnostics to just understand what we have, right? Obviously, you could open up a file and see that it has a ton of information in it, but how comprehensive is it? How complete is it? Does it have, you know, fake names populated throughout or do we think it's real data? These are things you can just assume because data is messy and, you know, in undergraduate, I often worked with really nice clean data sets that were given to me, but that's very rarely the case in the consulting <laughs> world. <laughs> so true. Nothing is more true than what we've talked about right there. I love it. Keep going. <laughs> so with that in mind, we rely on we rely on a few different statistical software package systems at Bates White. Um, we use Data and R, which are kind of our two primary coding languages um, for those people that are into code out there. We relied on Stata in this instance to process the data, the audiogram data that we received, as well as data that we had on claimant filing. So every single person that had actually filed in the case, we had a record of their filing. Mm -hmm. So we loaded that information um, into our statistical software packages. The team developed code to process and standardize the data, which was very clean. Um, I'll say, I'll give it that credit. It was very nicely formatted data, which doesn't always happen. And I think the team was very thankful that it was very clean as well. Um, we loaded that in, process, processed it, did our data diagnostics, and through that, we're able to confirm that we did in fact have a lot of data, a lot of really helpful data, which is not always the case on our matters. From there, it became understanding, you know, the rate at which we actually saw hearing loss manifest. You know, we have these allegations and oftentimes complaints are written as expected from the perspective of the claimants and, you know, are making allegations with regards to the rate of hearing loss and tinnitus that they thought resulted from these products and the defective, the defects that they were alleging. But what do the data say about that, right? What, if we apply publicly available hearing loss standards because WHO, um, the CDC, there's a lot of information out there about what constitutes hearing loss. If we apply that to the data, what does the data say about hearing loss? You know, are we finding that everyone has significant impairment? And, you know, based on that result, what do we think that means in terms of case strategy? And how can we help work with the lawyers to figure out what our case strategy should be? So part of it was one, determining how do we even define or think about hearing loss and tinnitus, right? Those are two medical diagnoses and how does that manifest in data? How do you understand that? Especially, 
you know, we're not doctors at Bates White. We're not a we're not a medical consulting shop. We are economic consulting. So a lot of it was getting up to speed on what the different standards out there were for how to, you know, diagnose or not even diagnose, think about hearing loss as it would manifest in audiogram data. And then from there, helping our client understand what those results were and how we should move forward based on those. So what kind of insights did you uncover? Can you share a little bit about, especially now that this is a public um, process, about what you found? What were the insights that you uncovered that were helpful for them? Sure. So I think the main thing that we found was helpful is that when looking at publicly available and well-regarded standards of hearing loss. So I mentioned, you know, WHO, um, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, um, the American Medical Association, they all publish standards on what hearing loss would look like based at certain decibel levels and your ability to hear at certain frequency levels. And what we found in the data was that a vast majority of the people in our data didn't appear to have significant hearing loss that they didn't appear to have um, something that would be considered impairment that would need to be corrected by a hearing aid or a cochlear implant, for example. And that was really fascinating. Um, It then became a decision of, or not a decision, but a strategy point of, okay, well, you know, what are maybe other ways in which plaintiffs might be characterizing impairment if it's not this type of impairment, right? We have 230,000 people who have filed the claim saying that they were impaired. Using these publicly available standards, we're not finding high rates of impairment that would correlate with that or make sense with that allegation. So then it became of understanding between the two parties, and this was part of the litigation, you know, how do you define hearing loss? Um, Is it using these publicly available standards? Is it, you know, looking at what are called temporary threshold shifts, which was another fun term, term I learned. Um, a temporary threshold shift is kind of, you can picture in the movies when someone is standing next to an explosion and then they have the ringing in their ear and they can't hear for a few hours. That would, that's, that's hearing loss. You have a temporary threshold shift, but maybe your hearing loss goes back to normal. And maybe in the data we're seeing the go back to normal results rather than that temporary shift. So. That kind of opened up a whole new world of analyses of once we figured out, okay, so we're looking at these data and these people don't seem to have impairment based on these publicly available standards. What are other arguments that both sides might make based on that result? And how does that position where we are in the case? We're gonna take a 30 second break to bring you this message. There's only one true way to build consulting skills. And that's to work on a consulting project right and makes sense. If you need to add experience to your resume or just wanna see if consulting is right for you, then we'd love for you to join Strategy Sprint. Strategy Sprint, it's a one week virtual consulting project taking place in November of 2023. You will work in a team of six, you'll get mentorship from an MBB consultant and you're gonna solve a strategic problem for a real world client. As of the time of this recording, there are just seven spots left for this program. So act fast before we sell out because we sell out for every single program. Link in the show notes to learn more about strategy sprint. Okay, let's get back to this episode. One thing that I am really struck by as you're talking through this, but before I ask my next question is just 
how much definitional analysis there is. This was a big shock to me. I, I just expected that everybody had these very polite, kind rules. And certainly in litigation, I think that's the clearest place where you see your your job is to actually identify what the rule should be. And you've talked about that as a huge part of the case so far. So I'm glad you brought that to light. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you talked a little bit about how many people were on the team. Can you talk about the levels and the functions? Was everybody, you, you know, and you, you kind of said, we did all of this. Like, did everybody, was everybody working on the same data set? Are you splitting up the data set? Is somebody looking at the public data and somebody looking at the data from discovery? Yeah, just like 12 people on a team, right? What's the breakdown of levels of different roles on that team? Yeah, you'll find that a lot of people at Bates White use the royal we all the time when talking about our work because it is a team effort and there's each part is critical to the case. So you've got some people that are analyzing the publicly available data, some people that are analyzing the data that was produced in discovery, some people doing research on hearing law standards. There's a lot of elements that go into the work we do and getting it from point A to point B. The team also had a lot of different levels and it was really fun because the case, um, I'm not sure I mentioned this, but the case lasted, you know, over a year. And so we also had people grow up and get promoted during the case, which was really cool and fun to see and kind of a testament to the type of work we were able to do and the opportunities that came out of that. So at the top, we had partners working on the case. We supported Charlie Mullen, who is a partner in our mass torts practice. He authored an expert report in the court um, which we supported the team royally. We had other partners on the case too, who provided um, consulting expertise as well, bounced ideas off of, again, people who have more years of experience than me in this arena and were able to provide invaluable insights on case strategy, how this has played out before, where they think we're going. Then we had you know managers and principals, so I'm a principal, um, and those kind of provide the day-to-day oversight of a case, help think of case strategy, talking to clients. We also had economists on our team. So this case was really cool because we got to think of, you know, some fun predictive modeling to understand and control for different factors, how that would then manifest in the hearing loss. So that was interesting to think of and a fun element to the case as well. And then we had a range of consultants a lot of people from our research team help us as well. And the size of the team and the scope of whether we needed all those people I just described or a subset of them really depended on where we were at in the case, whether we had just gotten a lot of discovery produced, whether we were in trial, preparing for trial. So lots of ebbs and flows throughout the case, but there was a core team of us throughout of consultants, managers, principals who were running the things day to day. I love it. Well, I want to highlight just one final piece of this before um, we move on. But what findings or recommendations did you actually present? What what was your, uh, you know, what or or wasn't there one? Right? I think either way, it's really illuminating. So were you just like, hey, here's how you could think about it, or did you say, here's our recommendation? This is what you should pursue, and this is how you should think about it. So just walk us through what that portion of the process is like. Yeah, I could talk about this case forever because I feel like we haven't even gotten to the mic drop moment of the case, which is... We're going, we're getting there, we're getting there. (laughs) Do you want to do it now? No, no, we can talk about it or we can get there in stages. So as I mentioned earlier, Arrow had filed for bankruptcy because of the litigation, the magnitude of the litigation that it faced. One of the parts of this case was that that bankruptcy filing was challenged by certain 
plaintiff law firms that represented claimants who were bringing the case. They filed a motion to dismiss the bankruptcy and to send the, all the litigation, resulting litigation, back to the MDL. There's been a lot of cases recently in the bankruptcy arena that have gotten challenged and dismissed. And so it's a somewhat tumultuous time in the bankruptcy world in terms of cases and getting dismissed. But one thing that we did as a result of that is we supported Charlie Mullen, as I said before, who um, put forth expert reports that were used in that motion to dismiss trial that was about this case. So we got to talk about the findings that we had and the rate of claims that there were and put numbers and you know concrete facts, what we were arguing were facts, concrete facts behind some of the allegations and trying to explain to the judge why we thought this case really should stay in the bankruptcy arena rather than go back to the MDL. And that was a result of the analyses that we had done to understand rates of impairment among claimants. There was a lot of additional work we did to compare and contrast this bankruptcy to other historical bankruptcies, which again relied on the available data we had in terms of number of filings, just showing how vastly different that was than any other historic bankruptcy. So that was one key part or culmination of a lot of our work with some of those expert reports that we authored and Charlie testified to at trial in this motion to dismiss hearing for the bankruptcy. Love it. Amazing. Okay. I'm, I feel like we're almost ready for the mic drop moment. So <laughs> what was the impact of your work in the case? So the impact of our work was that we got to testify at trial. We helped um, our clients, I think, a lot in that regard. We helped educate the judge a lot in the matter in terms of why we should be there. The bankruptcy did get dismissed, which was not necessarily the position we would have wanted. We were all a bit surprised by that. But I don't think that detracts in any way from the work and quality of work that we provided. I think the client was much more educated. The judge was much more educated with regards to the benefits of being within the bankruptcy realm. Um, the judge, I like to think affectionately, referred to Charlie Mullen as a bankruptcy stan, you know, the fun word for fan these days, but a bankruptcy stan, a supporter of bankruptcy. So that was fun to hear. And even though the bankruptcy got dismissed, which sent it back to the MDL, um, because once Arrow had filed for bankruptcy, it put that litigation against Arrow on hold. It went back to the MDL, but the MDL actually recently settled um, in August. There was um, a settlement that was released, and I like to think that our work also really helped inform the client as to the scope of that settlement and how it should look and, um, you know, the, the strategy behind it. So. Working in the litigation setting, the case outcomes are not always going to go the way that you would hope. And I would say that the bankruptcy being dismissed was not what we were hoping for. But our work was still really valuable in the sense that we got to, again, educate the judge. And then even once we went back to the MDL, still provide value in helping the client think through, you know, now that we're not in the bankruptcy anymore, what do we do now? What are our options? Um, how do we still achieve you know, a degree of resolution with this lawsuit, um, given that we're not in the bankruptcy anymore. So that was still really interesting. Maybe not as much of a mic drop as I teed it up to be, but I like to think the case, you know, we provided a ton of value and it was an extremely rewarding thing to be a part of, to go through the trial. Um, I was there with Charlie as he testified to come back and then to continue to provide support to our client as they were looking at what their other options were. Now, 
just as a kind of zooming out takeaway, what do you feel like your learning process would foretell for what other businesses or industries would take away from a situation like this? How to do it well, um, how to kind of pursue the the right data in the right way. Um, and, and I also would like for you to speak specifically to the fact that you mentioned we went to trial. So I, I think maybe people wouldn't know that that doesn't always happen and whether or not it's the goal. So can you just speak to that a little bit um, about, you know, how do you measure what success looks like and how should industries that are thinking about protecting themselves from litigation or defending themselves in litigation, um, how should they think about the insights that you gathered in this situation? Yeah, for sure. So you're right that we, we don't always go to trial. Um, it's you know, really interesting when we do, but you know, sometimes a company will file for bankruptcy. Um, that's in a similar situation that our client was, you know, facing a huge volume of litigation, whether that's in terms of the magnitude of the claims that are being brought forth or the number of claims being brought forth. And the fact that we went to trial and had our case dismissed, I think there are a lot of lessons learned that come from that and that impact how different companies who are considering Chapter 11 bankruptcy reorganization as an option to resolve mass tort litigation will approach cases moving forward. There's, and you can even see that based on the judge's order. So when the judge ruled to dismiss the bankruptcy, right, he filed an order that explained his logic and his reasoning. And part of that was based on the work that we had done and how that impacted his opinion just as much as part of his opinion was based on the work that the other side had done and how that impacted his opinion. So one thing that can come out of this or that, again, other companies, consulting shops, supporting those companies who are thinking about Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing, they're all looking to the current cases and how they're being handled and whether they're being dismissed, whether they're being let go through. And I think a lot of it then goes to inform their strategy about how they file then when they think about this option and what plan B and plan C and plan D they should be prepared for in the event that they aren't successful in their refiling. And I think just seeing that that process plays out and the type of analyses and arguments we did to support the bankruptcy um, and then having it dismissed, I think all of those things are invaluable insights for companies that are considering this process moving forward. Well, zooming back to you again, what makes this work rewarding for you? You have a big smile on your face for everybody <laughs> who's just listening to this. You can't see it, but for those that are watching, you, you've been able to see it the whole time. It's clear that it's engaging, interesting, fascinating for you, um, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. What What is it that you like about it? What, what wakes you up in the morning and gets you excited to work on this work? Yeah, so the cases we work on are usually fairly high profile, and I find that to be very exciting, fun to be a part of. But I think, you know, even on the cases that aren't as high profile as the one I've been talking about, I take a lot of value in diving into the data and helping our clients understand what the data are showing and helping them build a narrative around the data based on the data, you know, that they maybe wouldn't otherwise be able to develop without us, right? They hire us because we provide very specific expertise in our ability to analyze data and help think of strategy through data, present results, and being a part of that process of thinking through what the data show, figuring out the puzzle, developing the storyline, both 
within people internally as we're thinking about our case and externally as we're working with clients, that's something that's very rewarding to be a part of, um, to kind of be in the weeds, be on ground zero with those people and developing that storyline that we're seeing in the data. I have always really enjoyed that. And I think that's a fun part of our work. I love it. Well, second to last question about career stuff. One piece of advice that you have for somebody who's thinking about doing the work that you're doing, uh, whether it is uh, insight advice, like know about this about yourself or do this to prep for it, uh, whatever you feel like the best piece of advice would be for somebody who's thinking about this type of work. Yeah, I would say to be curious and not afraid to ask questions. I think there's a lot of value that someone can bring to the table with fresh perspective. You know, oftentimes when we're working with the data, or even if you're working in a particular industry time and time again, you know, you can kind of become entrenched in the details and, you know, lose the forest for the trees. And I think bringing in fresh perspective and asking questions can really help point out new things that other people wouldn't have considered because you have that fresh perspective. And being curious and asking questions is just gonna help you get up to speed and be a more contributing member of your team anyway. So it's a win-win all around. So I would say that's my biggest advice would be to be curious and ask questions because it's going to help you learn, it's going to help you come up to speed. And oftentimes it's gonna shine a light on something that someone who has been doing this for years might not have considered. I love it. Last and final question. You mentioned a little bit about the work that you do, litigation, et cetera. Uh, and one thing that I've discovered in my years of doing this is that litigation never sleeps. And in fact, sometimes it increases <laughs> in times of economic uncertainty. Um, people push different buttons, right? So uh, can you just talk a little bit about, I, I, I hear Bates White is hiring. Um, talk a little bit about the kind of prospects of your industry. And also we're gonna put into the show notes, we're gonna put a link to learn more about the roles. Um, but but yeah, what are the kind of, you know, quick state of the industry and then what are the qualities or attributes of folks that thrive in the role, like the case that you just discovered today? Yeah, so the state of the industry is that we are still very busy. <laughs> Litigation does not stop oftentimes, despite what's going on in the economy, if anything, if things are tumultuous in the economy, that tends to result in more litigation and more work for us, whether that's a good or a bad thing. Good for us internally, but you know, litigation is a contentious topic. So I think when it comes to someone who's thinking about working at Bates White or the types of skills that we value. So I mentioned before that I think someone who is curious does really well. So I think that drive, that hunger to learn is only going to serve you well. We work on a lot of different projects, which someone might not have any prior experience with. I would not say that I knew a lot about hearing loss and earplugs and audiograms before working on Arrow. And I think you have to have a drive to learn new things in order to enjoy this type of work. So that's a huge part of it, of you know having that strong work ethic, being intellectually curious. I think another huge part of what we do, which perhaps isn't surprising, is being a clear communicator. We're working with very complex data and a lot of our work is explaining that data to people who are not as um, maybe interested and or have that same you know background that we have to understand all the nitty gritty things. So a huge part of our work is taking the very in-depth analyses that we do and making them much more approachable for a layman and an audience to understand. Um, that happens externally with clients, with judges, with juries. 
that happens internally when you are a junior consultant and you're explaining an analysis to a senior partner who is not as in the weeds as you are. So that clear communication is something that is vital at all levels at the firm, um, just changes in terms of who you're communicating to. So I would say that hunger to learn, intellectual curiosity, and clear communication, good communicator, those are all great skills to have. I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing about Bates Bates White's work in this particular situation and also about your specific enthusiasm for the role in the company. Before we finish though, we've got to have a little bit of fun. So I've got three (laughs) quick questions. These are rapid fire, not related to the topics that we talked about before. Uh, The first one maybe has a little bit more seriousness, but but these three questions will just wrap up uh, our getting to know you session. So (laughs) one piece of advice that you'd give to your 21-year-old self? That's question number one. Oh, I would say take more chances, try more new things. I feel pretty lucky that I've always kind of known what I wanted to do. I've always been into data, so I didn't, you know, try a lot of different industries, different classes outside of that. And I very much enjoyed that. I love the work we do, but do I wish sometimes maybe that I would have taken a completely different class outside of my comfort zone. Sure. I think there's a lot of fresh perspective in that. And maybe I didn't need to take every single class only be related to econ. (laughs) I love it. Well, the second question is the most unusual food you've ever tried. Most unusual food. Okay. So a few years ago, I guess more than a few, maybe five years ago, I went on a hiking trip to Patagonia in South America and I tried guanaco, which is essentially an Argentinian or Chilean llama or alpaca related. So that was very unusual. I don't think many people have tried that. Um, I don't, I couldn't tell you really what it tasted like. I don't really remember, but that was definitely different. Must have not been like chicken though. (laughs) You know, it could have been maybe. I I remember liking it, it was well prepared. That's amazing. I, that, uh, nobody has ever answered that question that way. So I, I tried to. I tried it. to think of something that was truly unusual. <laughs> I feel like you nailed it. You got it right there. The last question is: um, What is the next item on your bucket list? So the next item on my bucket list, I'm very fortunate that I'm going to be able to cross it off soon. I've always wanted to go to India, and I'm planning to go to India next year with my mom. So I'm really looking forward to that. I love it. Well, it's such an honor to have you on today. Thanks so much, Katie. Really appreciate your time, your insight, your perspective, and your thoughtfulness. So thanks again for joining us on Strategy Simplified. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode with Bates White's Katie Luker. If you're interested in learning more about the firm, there are links in the show notes where you can uh, browse the firm's careers page, see open roles, and submit your application if, uh, if a role is right for you. Of course, make sure to network with a current consultant before you do that. It's the best way to get to know the firm and build some credibility before you send in your application. Reach out to our team, team at managementconsultant.com with any questions about how to navigate the recruiting process and more. We'd love to to work with you and, and, and help you out on that process. Thank you for listening to Strategy Simplified. We'll catch you again next.